Hey guys, it's Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. Uh, I've got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast for you today. Uh, we are being joined by Tyler Anderson in this podcast, who is a minor league pitching coach in the Los Angeles Angels organization. Uh, pretty excited to have Tyler on the program. He's a former player of mine. I, I got to coach him for uh, for one year. I mean, he was a pitcher. I was a hitting coach, but still on the same team for a year. So it's great to reconnect with him. Uh, I'll give you Tyler's background before we jump into questions with him. He is a Perth, Western Australia native. Uh, started his playing career in college at Glendale Community College in 2007. That's an NJCAA program in Arizona. Then in 2008, he played on the team that I was coaching at Southeastern Community College, a junior college in Burlington, Iowa. At Southeastern, we were ranked as high as number 15 in the country that year in 2008. Then Tyler went on to play at William Woods, which is an NAIA school in Fulton, Missouri. He was there in the springs of 2009 and 10. That team at William Woods, both years he was there, was ranked nationally, and it was the first time in program history that they were that William Woods was ranked nationally in the top 25 of NAIA programs. They also went to the conference championship game uh, in both years that Tyler was at William Woods. He then became the third player in William Woods history to sign a pro contract when he signed with the Perth Heat. They're a pro team in Perth, uh, Western Australia, where Tyler's from. Uh, they are a part of the, the ABL, which is the Australian Baseball League. Uh, he played for the Perth Heat. In, so, that, so they, in, in, in Australia, they play uh, through in North America, what would be our winter. So they kind of they cross over calendar years. He played there in the 2010-11 season and played there again in the 2011-12 season. The Heat won the ABL championship both years Tyler played there. He was also a 2011 representative of Australia in the 2011 Asia Series where they played against teams from Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. Uh, then Tyler started his coaching career at Dartmouth College, which is a Division One in the Ivy League in Hanover, New Hampshire. He was there in the springs of 2015 and 16 as an assistant coach. His second season at Dartmouth, Dartmouth led the conference in ERA and walks per nine. His pitching staff set the school record in that second year, 2016, set the school record with 297 strikeouts. They also had a ninth-round draft pick and a 28th-round draft pick on the mound uh, in 2016. Then the spring of 2017, Tyler was an assistant coach at St. Louis University, a Division I school in the Atlantic 10 Conference. That year, 2017, St. Louis went 35-22. and 22. That was the third most wins in school history. St. Louis that year broke the school record by striking out 449 batters. They also set the school record with 19 saves that year and had a 32nd round draft pick off of that pitching staff. In the fall of 2017, Tyler was an assistant coach for the U18 Australian national team. In October 2017, there was uh, something pretty significant. Tyler published a paper called Implementing a Driveline Program at a D1 College, which we'll definitely get into that uh, once we get into questioning here with the podcast. Then in the fall of 2017, Tyler was hired as the pitching coach recruiting coordinator at Lindenwood University, which is a Division II school in St. Charles, Missouri. Uh, however, he only spent the fall there. In January of 2018, he was hired to be a pitching coach in the Angels organization. He was there the spring of 2018, 2019. This will be his third year coaching in the Angels organization this year. In the offseason, uh, the 2019-2020 offseason, Tyler was also the pitching coach for the Perth Heat back in Australia in the Australian Baseball League. The Australian Baseball League is now governed by Baseball Australia as well as Major League Baseball, so there is an affiliation with the MLB there. And uh, this year, Tyler will be the pitching coach for the Burlington Bees, which is the short-season A team. Um, for the Angels in Burlington, Iowa. 
Uh, how about that for full circle? You you played for me at Southeastern Community College in Burlington. Uh, not that I was the head coach, but played on, on a, you know the same team I was coaching in Burlington, Iowa. This year, you'd be coaching back in Burlington, so that's kind of a, a, a cool thing we may also get into. But Tyler, really appreciate you spending some time with us today on the podcast, and I'm excited to get into this with you. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Excited to uh, talk some baseball. Uh, as much as I want to... T- Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Talk about the paper that you published, the driveline paper, I would like to start by kind of asking about uh, going back to Burlington, uh, where you started, it was your, your second year playing in college. Um, I, I think, did we play the Bees that year? We might have went, might, I mean, no, we, we practiced there in the offseason for sure. Yeah, that was one of, the, one of the seasons we didn't play, so I never got a chance to play at that stadium or play against the Bees. Okay, that must have got canceled. So we, at that junior college, we would play the short season, or we'd, we'd play there uh, from time to time, but uh, when, they, when that team came back, they would kind of like play a couple scrimmages, and, and that was one of the things we did, but that year we didn't play them. Anyway, uh, how does it feel? this year to be going back to Burlington and, and reliving some memories from back in Iowa. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I don't think I've been back there since 2008, so um, it'll be cool to get back there. I was only there actually for one semester, so I didn't spend a ton of time in Burlington um, at all. So it'll be cool to, to live there for a while and explore the town a little bit. I didn't realize that. So I just uh, I also went to Southeastern just for the spring. Um, I was there in the spring of 2008 and then the whole year of 2009, so I guess I didn't realize, I, well, I forgot anyway that you had only also been there for the spring. Um, yeah, I, actually took, uh, I actually took online classes from Australia in the fall and then just <laughs> showed, up, showed up at Christmas time and played. So. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about just uh, baseball in Australia? For people who aren't familiar from the States here, uh, a lot of Australian baseball players have to start out their college careers in junior college. Would you mind just talking about that a little bit, why that's the case? and and uh, kind of how that impacted your your playing career. Yeah, baseball in Australia, is, it's actually pretty frustrating. Um, they had a really good, successful league in the 90s, the 80s and 90s. Um, a lot of professional players played in it, a lot of big names. The Australian guys were making enough money not to work jobs. Um, and then the individual owners took over and just mismanaged the league and the teams, and it went bankrupt. Um, and we didn't have a league for – a lot of years. So in 2010, they restarted the league with help from Major League Baseball. Um, every team was owned by Major League Baseball, so there was no individual owners. Um, all the teams got the same amount of money from, from MLB, and um, that was the first chance to, to kind of give Aussie kids a place to play now. Um, so when I was growing up, there was nowhere, there was nowhere to play. Um, you would go through your junior leagues and then when you got older, you just played in the men's league, and that was it. There was there was no other options if you weren't signed to play pro ball. Um, so the best option, and that kind of started around when I went to college, is for kids to go to college. And there's been hundreds of kids go now. Um, it's pretty much the best the best option if you don't sign out of Australia as a 16, 17, 18 year old. Um, so yeah, it's it's 
it's the only option. The cool thing now is we can come back and play in the ABL, and, and players are starting to make some money. So um, there is somewhere for the, the Aussie kids to come back and play. A lot of them were going to junior college and then never coming back because there was nowhere to play. Um, a lot of them stayed in the States and got married and, and stuff like that. So, Because um, there is no high school baseball in Australia, correct? There is no high school baseball. That's it. So you all play club baseball, and then there's some state teams and stuff like that for all the best players. And, and then when you're done, you just continue to play in a men's league, uh, which made the men's leagues there pretty good. There's, there's ex-big leaguers, ex-pro guys, um, ex-Olympians all playing in a men's league, which is kind of crazy. And then, uh, how, how is uh, what? What's the reason that most of the most of the kids that from Australia that come and play in the states have to start at junior college? Uh, there's multiple reasons. Uh, school is one of them. We don't take the SAT or ACT. Um, you can take it here, but it's something you would only do if you're going to go to the states to uh, to study. Um, so a lot of kids don't know what it is and don't take the test. I think it's you can only take it three or four times a year. Um, so school is one. Um, money is another one. It's hard for Australian kids to pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars to go to school. Um, so if you can pay three to five thousand or whatever it is to go to junior college, uh, it's a much better option. And also, there's not a lot of scouting, so it's hard for players to get seen to go to a Division One school. There's not a lot of Division One schools that are going to come out to Australia and see a kid. Um, so you kind of have to go to junior college, put up some numbers, and then transfer. So. I know for me as a junior college coach, that was it was exciting <laughs> to get some to get some Australian kids because you felt like you were like in an untapped market there, you know, yeah, trying to bring makes, kids back. It makes a lot of sense for a school in the Midwest that you know there's not a there's not a ton of kids that if they're really good, they're probably going to go to Division One school somewhere else um, or stay in the state of Division One school. And so those junior colleges in, in cold weather to go get kids from Australia makes a ton of sense too. Then, so uh, one of the things I kind of found interesting was, you know, usually when um, when your players arrive as a as a college coach, your players get there in the fall and they've just completed their you know their summer season. But obviously, the the, uh, the seasons are the opposite for you guys in Australia, so it's a little bit of a different thing as well. Just just the adjustment of essentially the the college season is happening in what would be like the fall, almost winter. Uh, for you guys as far as the seasons that you experienced. Was that anything that you had to deal with coming to, to Glendale the first time around? Or yeah. Even... I remember getting to Glendale. It was middle of winter when I left um, Australia and showed up in Arizona. It was 110 degrees and um, ready to play. So obviously I knew I was going and was in shape and stuff like that. But, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an adjustment for sure. And then I didn't have to do it in Iowa. Uh, that would have been a, a big adjustment. So, um I got to show up in the fall, which is right in the middle of our, our summer season um, at home. Uh, show up in the spring, sorry, which is right in the middle of our summer season. So that was huge for me going to Iowa. Yeah. So this past year, the off season for the minor leagues, you got to go back home and coach in the ABL. Um, you played there back in the day. How much had how much has the competition level changed from when you played there to this past year when you coached? Yeah, it's changed a lot. The league's got a lot better. Um, there was good players when I was there. Um, there's a lot of young pro guys that teams had just sent out. I think D.D. Gregorius, Kevin Kiermeyer, Reese Hoskins. Like, there were some really good players um, that first year, but there was a big drop-off from the best players to the worst players. Um, I feel like 
when I went back this year, every team is competitive and every team, they're individual owners now. MLB doesn't own the team. So the individual owners are spending money and there's some really good players. Uh, most teams have an affiliation still. Uh, we had one with the Tampa Bay race. So we got seven guys from the race, um, all pretty good prospects. And then you fill the team with young Australian guys, older Australian guys, um, and then guys that went to college and came back and then indie ball guys that are trying to get another job somewhere. So it's, it's pretty competitive. Um, those indie ball guys that have pitched in AAA and they're 33, 34 years old are, are pretty talented still. So um, it makes the league a lot better than, than what it was in 2010, 2011. How's the, how do the fans down there, I mean, do they, are they supporting the teams a lot? Do you see a lot of people at the games or is it still something that's growing for the, as far as fan base goes? It's growing. Um, the individual owners have helped because obviously they're trying to make money, whereas MLB was just kind of pumping money into it um, and hoping it would grow. But the individual owners want to see a return. So they're, they're investing um, a lot of advertising. They're getting out. They're doing everything they can. So I, I would say the crowds were up this year. I think I saw somewhere they were up 25% from last year. Um, they also added a team from New Zealand and a team from Korea. Um, so that's driven the numbers up a lot because uh, – Korea's on the same time zone, so they watch all the games in Korea. Um, obviously, baseball's huge there. So um, the league's growing for sure, and I've, I've heard rumors they may be trying to add two more teams. So That's awesome. How would you say that the crowds are there compared to, like, minor league games would be in the States? Very similar. Uh, Friday, Saturday nights is probably 2,500, 3,500, something like that. Um, Thursday night games, probably a couple hundred, not that many. Um but on the big nights, they, they pack a stadium and, and yeah, 2,500 to 3,000. So it's it's growing slowly. That's good. Hopefully it does. I mean, the more the game grows, you know, all, all around the world, the better. But especially in, in Australia, New Zealand. Um, it, the league is perfect for a pro team to send prospects that either got injured during the minor league season, um, didn't play a lot, need extra at-bats, need more innings. Um, it's ideal for that. Um, if 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 I ran a pro team, I'd send guys out every year that need extra at-bats, extra innings. It just makes a ton of sense. Um, and us being with the Rays, they've seen a lot of success um, the last couple of years. Um, they had Mike Brosu, who I think that's how you say his last, last name, um, played the year before I got there. Um, and he was in the big leagues this year playing at third base in the playoffs for the Rays. Um, and then Jake Fraley made it to the big leagues and then was traded to Seattle. So they've had a couple guys that a year after leaving the ABL, they've been in the big leagues. So it's pretty crazy. Now, one of the things that was always just a, a little weird to me about, um, I don't want to say weird, but it, it's maybe maybe a little unfair, uh, but the, the the winter leagues that that happen in, like, Latin American countries, there's, uh, you know, the Dominican, um, uh, the other winter leagues, major league teams will pull players out of there like when they've sort of hit their quota. You know what I mean? Like they go there to, get to, to throw a certain number of innings or to get a certain number of bats, and when they sort of do, they fulfill that, you know, they're being pulled out, but the team is still playing, and they may be going to the playoffs or whatever. Was it like that in the Australian League, or are guys there, like, for the duration? They're, if they're there, they're there all year. Well, they sent us three pitchers. Um, two of those pitchers had an innings limit and left halfway through the season. One of them stayed for the full year, um, and then all the position players stayed for the full season. So some of the pitchers um, got to their innings limit and left, which makes sense. Um, and then the position players just continued to play, which was cool. Yeah, there's probably no way around that, I guess, with pitchers when they're 
you know, the people that are that are really paying them, like, no, they're preparing to come back to the States and play. That's what they're really, I guess, there for. Yeah. But I the, guys always... sent, the guys they sent us weren't guys that were hurt or anything during the season. They just sent them out to go to another country and English-speaking and, and kind of get – they were two Latin guys, so kind of get around, get out of the country and learn more English and just throw 10 to 15 innings. So it made sense for those two guys to just play half the season. Yeah. I'd like to talk next, Tyler, about probably one thing that has really changed the course of your career that you probably weren't expecting it to do that at the time, but the paper that you published in October of 2017 called Implementing a Driveline Program at a D1 College, which I know that uh, I, I know you can at least find, if you're interested in reading that from Tyler, you can at least get it if you go to his LinkedIn profile. I'm not sure. Is it anywhere else that anybody can access it if they want to? Uh, I think it's on the Driveline blog somewhere. It's probably back a ways, but I think it's on the Driveline uh, blog portion of their website. Okay. What, would you mind just talking about, first of all, why you did it, why you decided to, to publish that in the first place, and second of all, just kind of, uh, you know, talk about what happened. Talk about uh, what you did at St. Louis, you know, what you found, um, why you decided to publish something, and, and just sort of what you – you know, what the experience was like at St. Louis implementing a driveline program. Yeah, I got I got to St. Louis. Um, I actually didn't really know any, anyone there when I applied. Um, I was just looking to move back to Missouri because we had just had a baby and my wife's from here. Um, so I emailed uh, Darren Hendrickson, the head coach there, um, and eventually got the job. So I came in and, and we were just talking about kind of my philosophy and what I wanted to do with the pitchers and stuff like that. And they had actually just done a weighted ball program the year before, um, and they probably had like six or seven injuries or something like that. Like they they had a lot of guys miss some time, and they weren't like too happy about weighted balls at all. They thought that was the cause, and they didn't want to do them. And and that was a little bit frustrating for me at first because I I was I figured this was my chance to where I could implement it. I'd been reading about, it, I'd been learning about it. I did it myself um, to learn about it. So eventually we just we just kept talking and and I had to put a plan in place and showed uh, Coach Hendrickson and he was on board with it. Um, we implemented it halfway through the fall so that I could see the guys and see where they were at um, as far as health wise and in shape and stuff like that. Um, we implemented it halfway through the fall, um, a little bit, and then we went pretty hard in the winter months and then early in January February before our season started. Um, and it was pretty successful. Um, guys were not necessarily velo jumps. There were some, um, but guys were just healthy, and they would throw a lot and just feel great after throwing. Um, it took a little teaching and coaching and the guys to learn the drills and what felt good and what didn't and, and let them individualize the program a little bit. Um, but it worked really well. Um, I, I don't think we had an injury that year. Um, we Pitched really well. We had Miller Hogan was pitcher of the year. Um, ended up getting drafted in the 32nd round. And then the year after I left, he came back um, to school, I think his senior year, and went in the sixth round. So um, guys were, were throwing harder. Guys were healthier. We were punching people out. Um, so it was pretty successful. Um, the, re the reason I did it, I'd been a volunteer for three years. I felt like I was kind of spinning my wheels and, and trying to get a full-time Division One job. And... Um, 
everybody was kind of learning about weighted balls at that time, and I had done a lot of research and a lot of learning and, and figured I could put some information out that may be useful to, to someone else that was about to implement it. Um, I think the biggest thing with weighted balls is them being misused, um, and people blame the balls, but it's, it's usually how they're implemented and programmed um, that's the issue. So I thought it would be smart to put out some information, so I, I, reached, I knew Kyle a little bit, um, and Mike Rothwell at Driveline and reach out to those guys and could write it and they were happy and on board and it was probably the best thing I ever did uh, within a couple months that I guess somebody at the Angels had read it and, and reached out to me. So it was huge for my career for sure. Pretty amazing that a minor league or a well, major league organization reads a reads something like that and reaches out to you and says, hey, w you know, we'd like to have you. What was that conversation like? I mean, you had, you had not applied for anything, right? They reached out to you um, no, I actually got a Twitter inbox message um, that said, hey, this is blah, blah, blah. Can, uh, would you be interested in interviewing? Can you give me a call? I showed it to my wife and was like, this is spam or fake or something. <laughs> it was just from like a random account on Twitter. So, um, yeah, I, so I was like, well, I might as well call the guy and see what happens. I called and it was our farm director um, and asked if I wanted to interview. So, um it was kind of crazy. I, I didn't hear from him from a while, and I texted him. Was like, "Hey, am I going to interview?" Um, and he texted me back, "Hey, just give me a call at two o'clock tomorrow." And I didn't think that was my interview. I just thought he wanted me to give him a call. Um, so I gave him a call at two o'clock, and I call in, and it's him, the big league pitching coach, the pitching coordinator, the assistant coordinator, the farm director, director of player development. There's about eight guys on this phone call, um, and I was not fully prepared to interview at that point. So luckily it went well and, and ended up getting the job. That is so cool. Uh, it's just something that I'm sure a lot of college coaches out there, that's, you know, like it's, a, it's a dream situation to be able to do something like that. Um, let's go back. I just I want to talk a little bit more about, about what you did with driveline and just kind of weighted balls in general. What's the, What's the biggest mistake that guys make with weighted balls that, that causes injury or that, that gives people kind of a bad – or gives weighted balls a bad rep. What have you seen or heard or, or experienced that people are typically doing wrong when they're using weighted balls and it, and it ends up causing injury? Yeah, I would say the number one thing is not doing an assessment. Um, I think making sure that the body is ready to handle the weighted balls um, and you're in a good place throwing-wise. Um, I think a lot of teams just like, hey, in the fall we're going to do weighted balls, but they haven't thrown yet, they're not in shape, they're coming off the summer where maybe they didn't play, um, and it's just too much too soon. I think there needs to be a progression um, from, hey, I'm going to start to play catch, I'm going to build up, I'm going to slowly add in some weighted balls. Then over a few months, a few weeks, you're in a place where you can go heavy and try and build velo. Um, and then I think you, in season, need to tone it down because you're pitching. Um, so, I think yeah, I think guys just overdo or – program it poorly um, and that's the biggest mistake if there's a high school players listening to this and just say the player had been considering or the player and dad had been considering weighted balls because they want to try to build some velocity i know you can't put a full program together in a in a podcast like this but what would you suggest to a kid like that who wants to try to add some velocity in the off season and is thinking about using weighted balls you know has heard about driveline um 
you know, what, is, there, is there anything you can suggest or anything you can, that, you, that you might say, like, this is probably how you want to go about it just to help somebody who's in that situation? Yeah, I would, I would start by doing a ton of research um, and then learning the drills um, just through light reps, um, just so you have the drills down. Um, you can find all the information on weighted balls on the Internet. Uh, you can find the drills on the Internet. Um, and then just start slow. It, they're not – a lot of kids see them as a magic pill, but if there's there's other issues going on, if there's strength issues, if there's mobility issues, um, it may not be the best the best thing for the kid to gain below. It may actually be the worst thing for the kid. So I would probably get an assessment done, um, functional movement screening, something like that. Uh, that's pretty basic, but just to make sure the kid can handle it. Um, and see where they're at strength-wise. Maybe you just need to eat more and get in the weight room um, and not do weighted balls until you can handle it and handle that workload. So um, the first thing I'd probably do is, is get some kind of assessment, put a plan together. Uh, the, dri the basic driveline, like, eight-week program is pretty good for someone that's starting, um, de depending on what age you are and physicality and all of that. So that's a good starting point. And you can find that on driveline's website? Yeah. Okay. Where would you go to get a, an assessment done? I mean, if you don't have a, you know, a guy that does that sort of specific thing for pitchers around you, where could a kid go? Can you go to, and this is a legitimate question I don't know the answer to, can you go to like a physical therapist in your area? Yeah. Or? I don't know the answer either. Either Usually I've been at a school or, or somewhere where that has somebody that can do it. Okay. Um, so I, I'm sure a physio or someone could do it um, in that kid's area. Okay. And, and what would you be checking for there? Like what would you – when you walk into a place maybe doesn't do a lot of baseball type of screening, what what should a a kid who, again, is in this position that wants to start weighted balls or wants to figure out how to gain velocity, like, and you go to a – you don't have a, a, a pitching person that you are aware of in your area and you just, you're going to go to a physical therapist and, uh, you know, ask for a uh, an evaluation or a screening. Like, what – is there anything specifically they should be asking for or looking for? Uh, like, the, the FMS is – pretty basic but would be good for somebody young that's just starting out um, and you're looking at if there's any issues basically movement issues um, FMS stands for functional movement system functional movement screen yeah screen. So like, um, is there any like ankle mobility is there any issues there knee mobility or hips um, any any issues um, at all basically full body um, just to see if you're ready to start a program It'd be similar to like starting to lift weights, and you're just your body can't handle it. Okay, and obviously, if you're not physically ready for weighted balls, that's where you're going to see the injury, whether it's a strength issue or whether it's a mobility issue or any any of the things you said. Like that's when you're going to cause injury. So it's really it really is something you got to take pretty seriously. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you're just loading weight, it's like I always refer to lifting weights. But if you're just loading weight on someone that can't handle it. Um, you're, it's a bad recipe. So similar way to balls. If, if you're not ready physically or where you're at throwing-wise, um, just adding more weight and even underload um, is not a good recipe at all. In your experience and, and from your research, is there a specific age or uh, uh, I guess a level of physical maturity that you need to reach before you should really start implementing either a weight, a weight program you know, strength program or, or weighted balls and with whichever one you have, you know, enough experience with to be able to talk about. But is there any, is there a specific age or, or a level of maturity that you need to get to before you start playing around with that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, 
I haven't spent a ton of time coaching younger kids, um, but I know there is a program on the driveline website for younger kids, um, for youth. I think it's like 14, 15, 16, um, and I think it's just lighter, lighter weight, lighter reps, um, learning the drills so that when you are a little old, a little more physical, you, can, you already know the drills, you know the programs, and you can just add weight. One of the things you said earlier that I thought was pretty interesting was that you you tried the driveline program yourself and, and sort of experimented on yourself. Do you mind talking about that and just what that was like, how you did it, what your experience was, um, things that you went through, and 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 just what you know, that kind of helped your that sort of helped your learning curve? Yeah, when I was at Dartmouth, I had I had a ton of time to research it, but I never actually got to do it at Dartmouth. So when I got to St. Louis, I saw that as my my chance to implement it, um, but I hadn't actually done the drills myself, and I didn't feel confident teaching people the drills if I'd never done them or what it feels like or how to do them. Um, so I, I literally got a set of, of weighted balls from St. Louis and went back in my garage and just did them, um, saw how it felt, what was weird, what was funky, um, and figured it out. So um, I actually, my shoulder's pretty toast, but I actually felt great after the first time I did it. Um, I just continued to do it a couple of times. I didn't do like the eight-week program or anything, um, but I just learned the drills and, and gave me more confidence to teach them, actually knowing what I was doing. So, I think it's such a good teaching point, coaching point in general, just to experience what you're teaching. I think it's the same whether you're a pitching coach or a strength coach or a hitting coach. You know, even if you're you're old and you feel like crap, and <laughs> I think it's yeah. still a good plan uh, to just try the stuff that you're teaching. You know, if you're a hitting coach and you find a new drill rather than just implementing it, just go through it. Just see what it feels yeah. like. That way you can sort of help to coach through the feel of things and, and what it's supposed to feel like and, and what the results are supposed to look like. I, I just I think it helps tremendously. It's something I used to do a lot. Um, it's honestly something I used to like to do when I'd give lessons to a little kid because I mean, if you give an hour hitting lesson, like it's tough for that kid to sit there and swing for an hour. So like we would kind of go back and forth on a tee. He would take some swings. I'd take a couple. And it was just a lot of it was kind of, just remembering what it feels like to do some things. Um. <laughs> For sure, especially with all the, the Twitter stuff now with people posting drills, I think it's really smart to, to test that stuff out instead of just picking a drill off Twitter and doing it because you saw it on there. That's a, a really good point, and not to, you know, there's make a, a... There's a ton of good information on Twitter, um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of bad information too. So I just think picking out and doing it and experimenting and, and making sure you don't just do it with your players because somebody smart on Twitter posted it. And a lot of stuff on Twitter. I've said this before on podcasts, but there are, there's a lot of information on there that, uh, you know, some of the sometimes particular tweets or drills will get a lot of attention, a lot of attention, a lot of views, a lot of likes. And I just there there are things that I feel pretty confident that I have a good feel for that I just totally disagree with and feel like it's going to wreck a lot of hitters. And I'm yeah. sure you feel the same way with pitchers. How, is there anybody in any way that what do people do if they're if they're looking at Twitter? They're a, a young player, coach of a young player, parent of a young player. How do you know whether or not what you're seeing is is any good? Is there any way to do it other than just maybe trying it yourself, like you just mentioned? Or is there how do you just differentiate what's good and what's not? Yeah, I think. Trying it yourself is probably the ultimate way. Not not everything works for everybody. Um, so maybe, you know, just because it works for that guy in the drill on the video, it's not necessarily going to work for you. Um, sometimes you see big leaguers doing stuff, and then a 12-year-old kid's going to take that drill from Twitter and try and do it. Um, and they're probably, probably not at that level yet or may not be at that level yet. 
Um, or that drill may be the best thing for that kid. I don't know. So it's trial and error for me. Um, and obviously who posts it is a big deal. Um, if, if it's a pitching guy that I have a ton of respect for, you know, has, has good information, is a, is a good pitching coach, it makes it a little easier to kind of try out the drills. Um, but I, I think anybody can post good information on there. So trial and error is probably the, the one and only way that you can find out if it's going to be helpful. Um, and that same drill may be helpful for one guy and not another guy. So um, it's all about just knowing what you're trying to do with the drill and, and is it working. So Another good coaching point and something that is, is not always easy for a young coach to realize is the same. One drill is not going to be good for everybody. Um, one plan that I kind of had as, a, as I got a little bit older as a coach was to give I, I'm a, I believe in drills. I think, as, especially as a hitting coach, I think that drills are really important to build the foundation of the swing. And, and my plan as an older, as I got a little bit older in, in coaching, was to implement a lot of drills, teach a lot of drills, and let kids sort of figure out which ones they like, which ones work for them, which ones help their swing, you know, which ones make their swing feel healthy when their swing sucks and doesn't feel good. You know, which drills can they go back to to kind of get it back? Um, and I think those are, are important things that, that I think, again, as a young coach, it's hard to kind of come to that realization, like you might love a drill and want everybody to do it, but just may not be for everybody. And, and it's funny with figured out baseball, I spent a lot of time around college coaches now and some coaches that I really, really respect, you know, they, they really could not buy into that more. Like, eh, I, cause I'll say things like, okay, is this something you do with everybody? How often are you doing that? Blah, blah, blah. And a lot of guys are like, yeah, I kind of let the, the pitchers sort of decide for themselves or. You know, I kind of give them the freedom to be able to do this or that because just no two arms are the same, no two bodies work the same, and it's hard. There aren't many things out there that work the same, exactly the same for everybody. I mean, there might be some things that everyone needs to do for, you know, band work, for example. If you believe in band work as a pitching coach, you might have everybody do band work, but one guy's work is going to be a little bit different than the next. Is that something that you've kind of, uh, also realized through your coaching career. I mean, you've been coaching for a while now, and uh, you've tried a lot of these things yourself. You played at a high level. Um, is that how you feel as a coach, or how do you uh, go about implementing things with your young teams? Because most of the teams that you're coaching, especially in the Angels, you have a lot of young guys that are kind of at the very beginnings of their career. Yeah. I, I've always done it where here's the base program, and then you individualize based off what you do and don't like. Um, if there's a drill where a guy's like, hey, I just don't like this drill. It doesn't feel good. It hurts, whatever. Just don't do it, um, or this is too many reps, or this ball's too heavy. Um, I always allow the guys to individualize because it's impossible for me to tell a guy how he feels, um, and and I have no idea how his body feels. So you always need to get feedback from guys, um, and that's probably the biggest coaching part is talking to the players while they're doing it, get their feedback, um, what works, what doesn't work, um, and, and just implement. Um, and really individualize the programs instead of just a blanket, everybody's going to do this, because I don't think that works. It may work for three or four of the guys on the staff, and then three or four guys may just get worse. So, um, yeah, I think communicating with the players and, and finding out what works and what doesn't work is huge. So there's so much information out there now. There's There are a lot of places you can find good info you, if you are on, uh, particularly Twitter, probably more so than, than Instagram or, or Facebook, I would think. You may disagree with that, but I think you can find a lot of good stuff on Twitter primarily. I think a lot of guys want to post on there. And going back to kind of how you got your start, you got your start by posting some information and, and the right people saw it and you got an opportunity. And now I think that there are so many coaches jumping from college ball to pro ball 
that a lot of guys are trying this. A lot, a lot of college coaches out there are trying almost to a point desperately to do anything they can to get noticed. They have blogs. They have, they'll, they'll post videos constantly of things they're doing with their players. Um, and I think, you know, there's what I would almost call phenomenon of a couple of years ago, especially it was like guys would post a lot of drills they were doing and, and they continued to do that to the point where it was like they built themselves up to be, uh, I don't know how to say it, sort of uh, almost, I guess, a, a guru online. Like this guy's, this guy's like the outfield, this guy's the infield guru, whatever it is. And, this, and yeah. you, you build yourself up to be like a, a real expert in a certain area because of what you do on social media. Yeah. On the other side of things, <clears throat> there's a question in this, I promise. On the other side of things, there are guys who I think have a good base but just kind of refuse to uh, sort of sell themselves that way. And they think, well, I'm going to let my resume speak for itself. And I, I'm not going to be one of these guys to just, you know, post everything that I, everything I ever do on social media for people to see. And they believe that the wins and losses and, the, and what they produce in the field will be enough to get them a job. Do you have any particular thoughts or feelings about that? Or if you are, were speaking to a young coach who's just getting started, just, you know, just finished playing a year or two ago, uh, or maybe within the last five years, and is and is and is kind of at a point where you were, where it's time to it's time to build, uh, it's time to go to the next step. How do you do it? And, and is yeah. and is posting on social media like everything? Posting everything you do on social media the a good way to go about it, or is there is it so is it getting so saturated now that it doesn't quite have the pool that it used to? Yeah, I think I think what changed was. Guys originally were putting out information to just share information with other coaches to make everybody better. Um, but then those guys that were putting out good information started getting hired, um, and now they can't put out information because most organizations don't let them. Um, and people realized that guys were getting hired from Twitter, so they just they started putting information out to get hired, um, which is a lot different than just putting it out um, to share with other coaches. Um, cause I don't think those original coaches that started sharing stuff thought that they were going to get hired, um, by minor league organizations. So that's not why they did it. And I think it's just, there's people are just posting to post and they're not necessarily always posting good information. Um, they'll just post some drill that they randomly made up and we don't know if it works or doesn't work or, um, and I think it's just getting saturated with, with videos. Um, the hard part is that's where the guys are getting hired from so if you are a young coach i would say it's okay to put out information don't saturate your twitter with a video every day or five videos a day just make sure you're putting out good information um if you're going to write an article make it a good article put a lot of thought into it people are just starting to post stuff to post stuff um instead of actually posting good info that other coaches would like to read i I'm glad you said that and didn't make me say it. <laughs> no, I think you're I think you're dead on with all that. Yeah, it's, it's hard because I I don't blame those young coaches for good at, for, for putting out information because that's where the guys are getting hired from. Um, I would just make sure that you're putting out good stuff. You know, it was to a point a couple of years ago that uh, there was a guy that was he was actually an assistant coach at a school where I knew the head coach pretty well. I'd known him for a long time. I was friends with him and. And I kind of talked to this guy, and, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to lose one of my coaches. And I was like, why? Did somebody tell you they're leaving? He's like, no, but this guy's going to get hired by a minor league team. Uh, somebody's going to hire him. And I'm like, seriously? Just, you know, from, from the Twitter stuff he's posting out there? He's like, yeah, I'm telling you, man, he's getting tons of attention from it. And the guy was good. Like, he posted a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and he did eventually. He got hired. I can't remember which organization hired him, but uh, and I won't say his name, but he's uh, but he's now a minor league coach. And there are a lot of guys that are that are out there like that that I think were you're really good. They were posting a lot of good stuff. There are other guys that I almost think fool people <laughs> by what they post, and they also you know I've seen guys that uh, have posted some things that I think are so ridiculous and so far off of what works and then six months later they're posting things that are completely the opposite um but they post so many times that like you can't go back and find an old something old and then it's like they fool of organization and i know i know one guy in particular that it's on my mind that did get hired and and i i guess what i kind of come back to in your to your point of you know putting good stuff out there that people actually want to see and, and want to read is that eventually you're going to get exposed if the if you don't have a real base, you know, yeah. of, of knowledge and something that you firmly believe in and something you have actually seen work in a game. Um, I just think there's a lot big difference to coaching guys in a cage as opposed to coaching guys on the field. And eventually like, you know, people, you're going to be, you're going to be found out and, <laughs> and what you're doing is not going to work. Um, yeah. There's a whole lot more to coaching than, than posting videos. Like even if you do get hired, you need to be able to talk to players. You need to be able to interact with players, um, get players to trust you. Um, it's a lot more than just knowing the drills um, and the information. So I think it's hard to – and obviously these guys who are getting hired on Twitter go through a series of interviews too. So they're able to to do something that, that made the, the organizations hire them during the interview process too. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot more to it than just posting on Twitter. No, the Angels obviously sought you out, and and obviously you're not in the front office or anything. But do they do they seem to continue to do that? You know, as you're going through the organization, this will be your third year with them. Do they seem to, um, for lack of a better way to say, it, do they seem to kind of scour uh, social media and find guys that are out there that have great info that they like, almost like they're they're finding their own applicants as opposed to waiting for the applications to come in. Yeah, I would say they scour everywhere, um, the Internet, Twitter, the ABCA, um, any any baseball event, Pitchapalooza. Um, if a guy makes sense and they want to interview him, they'll reach out. So I, we've gone kind of to the way of coaching college coaches, um, younger guys. Um, that's kind of what we've done the last couple of years, and I, I think it's been great. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's such a shift? of coaches that are being hired out of college now because when I when I coached you I think the year that I was at Southeastern I was I don't know 23 24 and and I didn't play pro ball and at that time it was like you had to play pro ball if you wanted a chance to coach in pro ball and it was almost like nobody nobody went from college ball straight to pro ball without past pro experience right yeah. but now it's the opposite now a lot of guys are jumping from college to pro ball why do you think that it why do you think that shift is happening so yeah, so quickly I, now? I think a couple of teams did it. I don't know exactly who, but a couple of teams did it early and and had a ton of success with it. Uh, and I think obviously like the the college environment is more of a teaching environment. Um, you do more drills, you do more stuff like that than traditionally they did in pro ball. Um, Pro ball, it was like you're a really good player already, and we do PFPs, and and you know you're you're already pretty good. So there wasn't a ton of, and I this is what I've heard. I obviously I wasn't there, but there wasn't a ton of um, 
true coaching. Obviously, there there was coaches there, and then they were doing what they could. But um, I think the college coaches started to think outside the box a little more with drills and player development, um, and the minor league team saw a chance to to snap those guys up um, that could really teach baseball, whether they played in the big leagues or played pro ball or not. Um, if you can teach it, you can teach it. So um, I think there's kind of that that area there where pro teams can go get these younger guys um, that are looking to to advance um, in their coaching careers and, and give them a chance to, to coach and make the players better. Okay. I also, go ahead. <clears throat> thing left, I also think that being able to talk and relate to players is huge too. So if you can get the younger college guys that, that want to learn and want to get better and want to develop as coaches, but they can also talk to the players and relate to them, um, I think that's been a, a big reason why they've kind of gone to the college route. Is there any issue from what you've seen or even in your own experience of – I mean, you played you played pro ball for a couple of years. Um, is there any issue with guys, pro, pro players, I guess, buying into what they're hearing from guys who never were at that level? Is, in other sports, that's not an issue. Like, you, you see guys coaching in the NBA or the NFL – that you know were very mediocre college players, um, yeah. and, and then they're they're really good, uh, really good coaches at the, at the pro level. But baseball is just a, a little bit of a different sport. There, have you in your own experience, but whether yourself or other guys that you've been on the coaching staffs with, have, has anybody had any issue with players really wanting to buy in and listen to them, just knowing that you know maybe that that twenty year old is saying, "Well, I'm a better player than you ever were. Like, why should I listen to you? Is that an issue at all, or have you not really seen that happen? I think that is an issue at times, um, and I think you kind of need to earn the player's trust. Um, I know as players they they do their background work, they Google the coaches, they they're like, this guy ever play in the big leagues? They ask like I've had players straight up ask me like, where'd you play? Why'd you do that? Like where are you from? How'd you get here from Australia? Um, but I think ultimately, if they realize that you can help them, then they buy in. Um, so as as a young coach, it's your job to earn their trust, um, be able to talk to them, be able to relate to them, and then for them to realize that, hey, this guy can actually help me, um, whether that's through doing something in a bullpen and it works and, and they see themselves getting better or whatever it is, um, you have to find a way to gain the player's trust. Um, and I've seen it just in my first couple of years. The first year, the player's a little standoffish. Um, you go to a, you go into your season, and you have 15 to 20 guys that you're around every day, and then those guys start to buy in. And then the next year, you get more guys. And over time, um, I think ultimately the players talk to each other about, hey, this I like this coach, this coach, this. Like they get it. So if there's a coach that they don't like or don't dis- they disagree with, um, it's hard if you can't gain the player's trust i'll tell you i don't like to talk about myself a lot um usually when i do i like to talk about what i did wrong (laughs) so people don't repeat my mistakes but like when i arrived at southeastern uh it was my second my second year of coaching um and i was a volunteer well i was i guess I, i spent one i spent a half a season at duquesne uh the little division one in pittsburgh where i where i went to school I spent a half the season there as a, as a second assistant, but I wasn't, like, the hitting coach. Um, when I arrived at Southeastern, I got there for the spring semester. I'm the, I'm the hitting coach. And, 
you know, you get there in January, you're you're going to play games in February, and and you there's a lot of pressure to do to do some things, and it was like I I felt like I had to come in and immediately like immediately impact kids. Like if I wait, if I wait to to try to to do anything with this guy to try to to try to fix him or help him, if I wait until like you get it's he starts to fail, it's me too late. It's me halfway through the season, and, and you know. I'm going to get fired. And like, I felt like I had to immediately start working with guys and coaching guys. Um, and that was a, a mistake, <laughs> but it was yeah. a difficult thing to do mid year. Yeah. What's your, but I'll just say that to lead into this question. What's your plan as you, um, you get your pitchers. Now you'll have your pitchers in Burlington and you, I'm sure some of them you probably coached last year, uh, as you're moving up a level. But, um, what will be your plan when you first get with guys as far as, when exactly you're going to start to try to tweak some things with them? What's your plan year to year with that? Yeah, I mean, it all depends. I'm going to have a good group this year because I was in the AZL and then I was in Orem the last two years. So most of those guys will probably be moving up to Burlington. Um, So a high percentage of the guys that I have, I've probably been around for a while, um, which makes it a little easier. Um, And those guys will probably get started right away. it depends on what the organization wants to do for each individual guy. Like every, every single guy will have an individual player plan um, and what we're trying to do for that guy. And we don't really want to wait a ton of time with those guys. Um, so it'll be it'll be right away kind of giving them, hey, here's your plan, here's what we think you need to improve, and here's how we're going to do it. Um, and then just kind of get their feedback on what they think is going to help them do that. Um, if they agree with kind of the plan we have so we can work with them um, and try and get their buy-in. Um, I think that's the main thing is getting their buy-in as quick as possible. Cause if they're on board, um, we can get a lot better really quickly. So it'll be a lot easier for me with a bunch of guys I've already have. Um, but yeah, just, just getting to know your guys early, joking around with them, talk to them, um, learn about them, uh, where they're from, their families, all that kind of stuff try and assess what type of learner they are, what kind of person they are, do they get frustrated easy, um, and then just kind of put a plan in place for each individual guy. That, honestly, Tyler, was something I wish people – I wish someone had t- taken me aside early on and said, you need to establish personal trust yeah. before this player is going to listen to you. Because, I mean, you, you'll have some players that are going to listen to you no matter what because that's just how they're wired. Yeah, and you're gonna have some players that may never listen to you. And, yeah, and, but even that player, I, I think you probably can reach at some point if you establish the trust with them. But that was something, honestly, it took me a, a while to just to figure that out. And you almost have to have yeah. a couple players that you fail with, unless someone does take you aside and, and actually say that to you, which no one ever did to me. But you, it's like you have to have a couple experiences where you totally fail a kid, and you sit back and self-evaluate, like where did I go wrong here? And then you just kind of realize that I just, I never got that player's trust. And he, you know, he, maybe he tried something and didn't work out and, and he realized that, and then he, then he thinks that you're just out to, you know, all you care about is him as a baseball player. I, I've had that happen and, you know, wish someone had given me the advice that you just gave. I think it's such an important part of just getting a player to listen to you. Yeah. And if, I mean, that's probably been the one thing there's always guys that are frustrating that you think you can't get through to. Um, but there's a way. That's the hard part is getting through to that one or two guys that don't agree or don't see it the same way you do or the same way the organization does or they kind of want to do it their own way. That's that's probably the number one coaching is how do I get how do I get through to that guy? Um, and there's always a way. 
I want to switch gears for the end of the podcast here, just for the last, I don't know, we have left 10 minutes or so, 10, 15 minutes, and just talk a little bit about um, something I actually didn't know about you until we, before we started recording the podcast. Uh, but there's a, there's a break in your bio. Uh, you played in Perth between the end of 2011, early 2012, and you did not start coaching until the spring of 2015. That was your first spring of coaching in college. And, uh, and you kind of shared with me what happened in the, in the meantime. Is that something that you, you're okay talking about in the podcast? Do you mind just telling people kind of what, what, what happened in those couple of years, that gap? Yeah, for sure. Um, so 2012, I finished up playing in the ABL in Australia um, and then came back to the States to get married to my college girlfriend. Um, when I came back, I had, I had a degree, but I had no work experience. All I'd ever done is played baseball or been to college. And, um, my father-in-law actually worked for an IT company, um, and was willing to give me a full-time job as a project manager. Um, I didn't work for him directly. I actually worked for one of the other owners. Um, it was really cool old lady. Um, she was the best, um, so I worked there for six years as a project manager, um, which was really, really important for me in my career, but I hated every minute of it. Um, I hated being stuck in an office. I didn't like IT. I didn't understand it. I was learning on the job, um, but it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I actually, I continued to have that job when I was a volunteer at Dartmouth and St. Louis. So for three years, I did both jobs, um, which was hard and had a newborn. Um, so it was a frustrating couple of years. Um, but yeah, it taught me a lot being a project manager, um, and being in the real world, dealing with real world people was huge. Um, obviously as a project manager, you have to deal with timelines and organizing and scheduling and unhappy people, um, happy people. So that was my first experience of, of people being mad that something happened, people being happy, happy that it got done earlier, um, scheduling, dealing with four or five different parties on, on one individual project. Um, so it's huge for me. It's probably the best thing that, that ever happened, even though I didn't like being stuck in an office and I knew I wanted to coach uh, the minute I could. Um, I actually, halfway through, I think it was three years in, um, I went to Brenda, my boss, and was like, um, I've been applying. She knew that I wanted to coach baseball eventually, and it wasn't a long-term thing for me. Um, but I told her I got the job in New Hampshire and I wanted to keep my job and work remotely. Um, and I didn't know if she was going to go for it or not. Um, and if she didn't go for it, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So um, she was all about it. She said, go chase your dreams, keep working. As long as you work, you're fine. Um, so I had to, I had to work remotely. Um, the company's in Missouri and I was in New Hampshire. So, um, yeah, I was, I was working all day in the baseball office, um, working on, IT stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that probably speaks a lot to your work ethic, the fact that your boss would let you go there. And that's a, a, to me, it's a good lesson just to do the best you can where you are, even if you don't love what you're doing, you know, do the best you can. And someone, a lot of times someone's going to notice and it's going to help yeah. you out in some way or another, even if you don't, again, if you don't love the industry you're in, maybe you're not coaching or maybe you're like Tyler, maybe you have, you're coaching and you're doing something else um, and you can't take the something else you, you can't half-ass it. You've got to give it everything you've got for it, for your life to become really what it's, you know, what you want it to become. Yeah. And I spent three years doing both. And then I finally got my first 
full-time job at Lindenwood, and then I was there for a couple months and got hired by the Angels. So everything moved pretty fast after I was able to get my first full-time job. How'd the conversation go with your wife when you told her that you wanted a job and, and you're living in Missouri uh, by family, and all of a sudden you're going to move to New Hampshire? What was that question like? Cause you had you had one you had one child at the time, and you're married. No, we didn't have any kids at no the kids time. Yet. Our first kid in New Hampshire. So, okay. Um, none at the time, but she knew I wanted to coach, and she knew I was email. I emailed probably every Division One coach in the country, um, <laughs> and the only the only response I got was from Dartmouth um, Coach Whalen there, which was awesome. And he actually only responded because he somehow knew my junior college coach in Arizona, which is the complete opposite side of the country, um, and he saw that on my resume and and said, I know Dave Grant, so I just wanted to call you back. So that's kind of how it started. Um, it didn't pay any money, a little bit of camp money, but not enough to even um, do anything with. So, yeah, I'd never been to New Hampshire. I'd never been to the East Coast. Neither had my wife. Um, and we just decided to move. So <laughs> um, she, she's not one to do things like that either, so it was huge for her. Um, since then, we've moved about eight times in six years. So, um yeah, we're professional movers at this point. That stuff's a lot of fun. That's one of the reasons why, toward the end of my coaching career, why just, I, I don't know, one, one way or another we need some stability because that's how it was actually. You you have a similar story uh, to me that I, when I came out to Iowa, I had never been to Iowa. I had never, I didn't even visit Southeastern. I just had, honestly, I, I kind of uh, needed to move on from where I was in the middle of the year, and I I looked to see what jobs were open in November, and there were like five jobs in the country that I probably had a shot at, and I applied for all of them. And uh, and Coach Schulte at Southeastern was one of the couple calls I got back, and uh, I accepted the job without ever having been there just because Schulte won, and I really wanted to go somewhere and win, and I wanted to learn how to win and ended up going out there and, and um, met my wife when I was in Iowa, actually, and then we moved. We lived in five states in eight years. Um, and my, my daughter lived in three states. My oldest daughter lived in three states before she turned a year old. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. She, she, lived, she, she lived in three states by the time she was like a year and two months, which is pretty wow. impressive. So, yeah. um, so we, we needed a little bit of stability. Uh, let me ask you one more question before I let you go. Uh, I, I, other guys I've talked to have – this seems to be a common theme with guys who kind of struggle, uh, you know, go through the, what uh, some guys would say, go through the suck of, uh, you know, getting, having these jobs, not making any money. And, and it seems like a lot of guys had a point in their career where it was like, if this doesn't work, I might be done. I might, I might have to quit and just get a normal job, you know, kind of a, a breaking point for their careers. Did you have that? I mean, you were still fairly young. Uh, you still are fairly young when you got the Angels job, but did you have that at any point in your career where you just thought like, all right, if something doesn't change within – you know, the next semester or next couple months or whatever, then I'm, I'm probably going to be out of this. I definitely thought about it. I don't know if it was ever a real thought, like I was actually going to do it. Um, one was I had a real job and I was making decent money, but I hated it. So I kind of already knew that <laughs> that wasn't what I wanted to do. And it wasn't about money. That's the number one thing I've learned is that you can make all the money in the world, but if you're miserable, it's, it's not worth it. So it's something you do every day, and if you're passionate about it, like baseball, um, it's not really a job. So it's not about the money. Um, I'm sure making hundreds of thousands would help. Um, <laughs> a little, little less uh, crappy, but um, 
No, it's it's not about the money for sure. Um, and and there are times when you want to quit, but if it's something you truly want to do, which it always has been for me, um, probably even when I was playing, I probably thought I was going to coach at some point. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know if I ever seriously entertained not doing anything baseball related. Well, hopefully you don't have to. <laughs> hopefully things just keep working for you. Um, I guess this, this will be the last question. I, this, and this is the last time I'm going to say last question. But what what uh, what's the future for Tyler Anderson? Do you you know do you have goals of trying to move up within the organization? Like, is the ultimate goal to coach in the big leagues? Do you think you might like to be uh, a manager or remain a pitching coach, um, or just kind of whatever you know any opportunity comes along? Have you thought much about just where you know long term where you'd like to end up? Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'd ever want to manage um, or be a head coach. Um, I enjoy being a pitching coach, and I think, especially at the college level, those head coaches' positions have turned into fundraising, speaking that you don't ever get to do. Putting out fires. Stuff. Yeah, you're, <laughs> you're never actually coaching. Um, you're always doing something else. So I think being a pitching coach um, is what I want to do. If I, if I were to move up with the Angels, which I'd love to, um, Eventually, I would love to be a pitching coordinator over a big league pitching coach. Um, I don't see myself ever being a big league pitching coach. Um, I think I enjoy – I would enjoy the coordinator position more, like scheduling, putting programs together, coaching the coaches, um, and running all that stuff over coaching in the big leagues. Um, I don't – I just don't see myself doing that. Um Obviously, obviously, I would if it presented itself at some point, um, and I was in the right place. Um, but if I was if I was to get out of pro ball, I'd love to be a pitching coach in a in a Power Five conference. Um, but those two options are probably probably it for me. Uh, just continue to work my way up, and hopefully, at some point, be a coordinator or or be a pitching coach in a, a Power Five school. Very cool. You never know how things will change, but that's always how I felt as well. Even as a as a college coach, I didn't have any real interest in being a head coach. I just, I wanted to recruit. Um, this is horrible to say as a, <laughs> not something you probably want to hear a coach say, but I could say it now because I'm not coaching anywhere. But, you know, being on the field, like being in the cage with hitters for like hours on end was like, that didn't give me any enjoyment whatsoever. You know, especially places I wasn't the hitting coach, especially you're seeing the cage like throwing BP for like three hours. <laughs> that was not yeah. something I personally enjoyed very much, but I love the recruiting side of it. Um, as I, I'm 35 now, and um, I've been a I've been a high school head coach, which I, I kind of I like more than I thought that I would. But you know, all the all the the outside crap that you have to deal with is there even at the high school level, and it's something that uh, I think coaches head coaches at every level have to deal with. But it was fun. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I liked kind of running the program. I liked kind of being the one that um, made the decisions. And you know, where I sit in my chair right now, it'd be very difficult for me to go be an assistant anywhere only because I, I have my, you know, I've got my thoughts and ideas of what works in, in most areas. Pitching is probably the area that I feel the least strongly about it, that I have an opinion that really, uh, that I wouldn't stray from, but it'd be very hard for me to go somewhere and, and like, you know, not be the hitting coach and see a hitting philosophy implemented that I didn't believe in or whatever. So, uh, but I definitely see what you're saying. And I think that, uh, uh, as you continue to have success in the Angels, I hope, I'm sure things will, will continue to open up for you. Um, Tyler, it's been a great, really great hour here spending with you on the phone. This is Tyler Anderson, everybody. He's a minor league pitching coach with the Angels. 
Um, he and I spent one semester together at Southeastern Community College way back then, so it's always cool to catch up with people that, that you once knew uh, in a past life. And, uh, Tyler, just the, the time has been great. I really appreciate you spending some time here. You guys are you'll be starting, I'm sure you'll be reporting very soon to, uh, to camp, uh, but appreciate you spending some time with us today on the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.